you know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than it's worth. The news can be scary and make you want to scream, or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods Podcast. It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection of stories that slip through the cracks of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. Hi, everybody. Chris Roberts here of the I Saw It on Linden Street podcast. Just wanted to stop and take a moment to tell you about a podcast that I've been listening to and I think you should as well. It would be the Horror Movie Survival Guide. It's a weekly podcast where two unlikely gorehounds and longtime chums, one of them a hardcore horror fan with a notebook to prove it, and the other finally coming out of the creepy horror fandom closet, get together to watch and talk about horror films from a survival point of view. They ask the question, how can they end up being the final girl? Join Julia and Terry as they take a deep dive into everything from OG horror to newly released films, but preferably the classics on VHS. They'll talk about obscure details that no one else notices, spin off into alternate casting universes, crush pretty hard on some dodgy fellows and creepy uncles, and they'll arm you, the listener, with the necessary knowledge to become the final girl. So go on, get out there, give them a listen. You can find them on Apple, on Spotify, on Google Play, anywhere that podcasts are available. And hey, when you get there, tell them Chris sent you. Welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. Some background thrown in on the actors, stories about the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you'd like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. This week, we are continuing this month's theme, A Simple Carpenter. That's our selection of some of the greatest films of John Carpenter's career. This week, we are covering the 1987 meditation on cosmic horror that is The Prince of Darkness. Join us! Bruised from the very public shellacking that the thing took from the critics, and failing to make up the box office revenue to placate Universal to recoup their promotion of the film, Carpenter found himself humbled by a perceived failure. 
He lost his opportunity to helm the Dino De Laurentiis production of Stephen King's Firestarter, which is odd because it ended up being jointly distributed through Universal and MGM. And Universal decided that it would cut its ties with Carpenter and just buy him out of the multi-film contract they had established with him before the thing was released. Ugh, still hurting. Carpenter was hired by Columbia Pictures to bring a different Stephen King adaptation, the film Christine. You know that funny little story about the murderous Plymouth Fury? The film was a hit, and it did snap Carpenter out of his funk. He took a few projects that spoke to him, but they were not stories that he wrote, and with them he had different levels of success. 1984's Starman was received fairly well, but just essentially broke even at the box office. 1986's Big Trouble in Little China, which is totally going to be a future episode for sure. It was a bona fide cult classic. It reteamed Russell and Carpenter together in a fantasy adventure, but it did not wow the general audience. It was a commercial failure in the day for 20th Century Fox, grossing only $11.1 million against its $25 million budget. So Carpenter just basically said, I'm going back to my roots. Why waste time making things for studios when I can just get the budget and not any of the control? So he decided to make independent films again. He was going to write them himself, he was going to direct them himself, and he was going to take care of it all. So he struck a multiple picture deal with Alive Pictures. Basically, they wrote him a check, told him he could do whatever he want, just have complete control, here's $3 million, don't ask us for anything else. And Carpenter was off to the races. So, if you haven't picked up on it by now, Carpenter's a man who has many interests, and one of them actually leads him to theoretical physics, the likes of which are trying to be used to understand, you know, simple things like the creation of the universe, the discussions on the states of matter, time travel, and other such minor pursuits of science. Carpenter was specifically interested in bringing notions of antimatter and utilizing the theoretical concept of tachyons to be a larger part of a story. A story that would explain a universe where there's an ultimate evil who is utilizing the physics as we are only just now understanding to try to enter our world. So, let's start from a very, very basic beginning. Antimatter itself should be a simple notion for everyone, right? I mean, it's the opposite of matter itself. Actually, the binary opposition to the very particles that shape the world around us. Now, antimatter as we think about it currently was born from the writings of the English physicist Paul Dirac, who along with his partner Erwin Schrödinger, of Schrödinger's cat fame, ended up winning the 1933 Nobel Prize in Physics for discovering a new productive form of atomic theory. Our modern interpretation of how atoms and the very nature of matter itself behaves. Dirac himself can be considered to be the father of quantum electrodynamics. It's his work in the late 1920s that shaped our understandings of positrons, electrons, particles, and even antiparticles. It's very non-Newtonian interpretation of how the world functions. Case in point, Einstein himself admired Dirac, but he didn't like his work, because it potentially exposed us to a larger notion that there exists forces that we can't account for, at least in this point in time, with our human understanding of mathematics. Isn't that crazy? 
Dirac's work laid the groundwork for quantum mechanics to be further built upon by great minds like John Stuart Bell, Roger Penrose, and the late great Stephen Hawking. So, I gave you all that, and I still haven't really addressed the concept of what is antimatter, so sorry. Uh, uh, for a layman, it's kind of hard to explain, even though I've been reading about it. For a modern interpretation, antimatter simply is, yes, the opposite of matter. A particle is going to have an opposite antiparticle of the same mass but the opposite physical charge. The Feynman Stuckelberg interpretation, which developed in the late 1940s, states that antimatter and these antiparticles are just really regular particles traveling backwards in time. And when they're paired, they'll actually seek to annihilate each other, and that will produce a photon in the process. Hey, are you going cross eyed yet? I am. How about this? How about tachyons? <laughs> What the hell's a tachyon? Well, it's a fun name to say, but those little bad boys are a hypothetical particle that was first theorized in the late 1960s by actually a few different physicists. They all came to it from independent you know, sources uh, and independent of each other. At its root concept, a tachyon is again a hypothetical particle that travels faster than light which would indeed break our known understanding of physics as to how the speed of light actually functions. Theoretically, you have a particle that's traveling at the speed of, or faster than the speed of light, so you would not be able to see it coming. As it's moving towards your face, you would only be able to see it as the tachyon passed you by. And when you did see it pass you by, you would see two images of it at the same time, one coming and one going. And then again, only after you had already moved past the point where you intersected it. So it would stand to reason, the closer you are to the origin of the tachyon, the more clear you would be able to see it. So the concept was proposed, at least in a thought experiment, that if you could harness a tachyon, you would be able to send signals faster than light. Thus, you would literally be able to send messages back to the past, something that they've basically dubbed a tachyonic anti-telephone. That does sound very clunky. And that was actually a proposed thought experiment of Einstein's, and he came up with that in 1907. Yet, what's the reoccurring motif in this movie is that people in the future are sending messages by way of tachyons to the past. Now, multiple people in the story end up receiving these messages from the future by way of tachyons. In this case, it's beamed to them in dreams, fuzzy images that get clearer and clearer with each passing day as you get closer to the date the message was sent. So good news, bad news, tachyons don't actually exist. Again, their very nature would be a violation of causality and would break our understanding of the theory of general relativity in physics. But all that aside, it's a really neat concept, and it serves well for science fiction plots, and in this week's case, a really cool horror film. But, for all intents and purposes, tachyons remain an imaginary notion. Wow, I didn't think I was going to be able to get through all of that. I bet you didn't think I was either. <laughs> so, <clears throat> As I stated earlier, this is the kind of stuff that Carpenter was really getting into in the mid-80s, and so he decided to frame a story around it. He was going to say that for years, religion has harbored a dark secret about how the universe actually functions, and instead, they built their rituals and morals around 
sort of a framework that allowed mankind to cope with the understanding and place him firmly in the center of the cosmos. Now, in these modern times, science has finally made the advances enough that religion can ask for their assistance, taking the lead in guiding our understanding, and more importantly, helping religion battle the forces of darkness that are once again out there, stirring. It was bold, it was irreverent, and it was quietly Lovecraftian. Carpenter took up the pen name of Martin Quatermass, named after his love of the fictional British scientist and character in stories, and he drafted a tale that really lays it all out. You have an ancient evil awakening, messages from the future, and scientists being brought in to use their knowledge to help investigate paranormal phenomena. Now, I will be the first to tell you, I didn't know what I was actually getting into when I first watched this film at the age of 17. Now, I myself am not a huge fan of supernatural horror that delves into religion. Don't get me wrong, it has a place, and I own many, many decent films that do that, but when you start with a movie where it's a horror film that has to be built on the viewer having a strong level of faith to be scary, it can become a non-starter for people. And in this case, the threat itself is cosmic. Whatever the viewer personally believes becomes inconsequential to the fact that the complete understanding of how the universe and man's place in it is about to be shattered. So who cares what team you're rooting for? At its core, it's a very worldly, science-inspired script that does a real slow build before locking in a bold team made of priests, physicists, biologists, mathematicians, psychologists, all together in one location, which is a church. And they find themselves quickly under siege, unable to leave, due to the effects of an ancient evil possessing the street people around them, which keeps them locked in, and yet, the more they remain locked in, they are in danger as they stay, due to a corruption spreading throughout the building. It's almost like a demonic assault on Precinct 13, which, in short, makes this something that can actually be enjoyed by everybody. If you like metaphysical, you got it. You want a good zombie film? You got it. And if you want to get some techno-speak thrown in there, oh, it'll give that to you too. So Carpenter played it close to the vest. He ended up shooting this film in Los Angeles over the course of about a month. He kept casting fairly simple. So the big names, this was Jameson Parker's first real big break to lead a film. He was coming in hot from working on Simon and Simon, which was still going on by the way, working with Gerald McRaney. Actress Lisa Blount was best known for her supporting role in the film An Officer and a Gentleman, and she had done some odd television work, but, I mean, they're technically your leads. After that, the casting, when Carpenter came to it, he just was like, let me pull people I've already worked with. So, he gets Donald Pleasance to come on board, stalwart as always, to play the character of Father Loomis, which is a nice in-joke there for people that are really into the Carpenter universe. He then got Victor Wong to come on board as Professor Barack and Dennis Dunn to come back playing Walter, and he'd worked with both of them on Big Trouble in Little China. So it's just more of the same. Hey, I like working with you guys. You do solid work. Join me. What was interesting is the producer of the film happened to be Hollywood's renowned super agent, Shep Gordon. At the time, he was managing Alice Cooper. 
So originally, all Carpenter did was reach out to see, hey, would Cooper be willing to record a song for the film's soundtrack? But wouldn't you know it, Cooper was interested in also getting on with a small part. And so he was turned into one of the film's iconic human villains. At least, he was one of the lead-possessed homeless people who terrorizes our scientists trapped inside the church. So once again, you have Carpenter scoring his own film. He's composing an entirely electronic slash synth heavy sound. I have to say, I enjoy the music that he does here for the film, but it is not one of his better scores in my opinion. Because of how much it's used, the score itself isn't very haunting or even scary. It Here, what's the best way to put it? It comes off as low rent. Here's an example. It's a sample of the opening theme. Okay, it's not awful by any stretch, but I'm not getting dread. I'm not getting energy. This sounds almost indistinguishable from a bunch of other films that came out during this time, which, if you wanted to date it to the 80s, that's fine, but this is not typical of a Carpenter score. He is, usually, rather unique and memorable. But, okay, listen, I've been gassing on now and you've been patient so how about we just get to that trailer roll it
Let's talk about our beliefs and what we can learn about them. We believe nature is solid and time a constant. Matter has substance and time a direction. There is truth in flesh huh? and the solid ground. The wind may be invisible, but it's real. Smoke, fire, water, light, they're different not as to stone or steel, but they're tangible. And we assume time has narrowed because it is as a clock. One second is one second for everyone. Cause precedes effect. Fruit rots, water flows downstream. We're born, we age, we die. The reverse never happens. None of this is truth. Say goodbye to classical reality because our logic collapses on the subatomic level into ghosts and shadows. From Job's friends insisting that the good are rewarded and the wicked punished, to the scientists of the 1930s proving to their horror a theorem that not everything can be proved, we've sought to impose order on the universe. But we've discovered something very surprising. While order does exist in the universe, it is not at all what we had in mind. Father Loomis needs help. A member of his order has died and has left him with a box that contains a key that opens a vault hidden in the basement of a dilapidated church. After discovering what's inside, he turns to the only people he thinks are now qualified to assist him in dealing with his find. Loomis is part of a long-forgotten order, the Brotherhood of Sleep, a secret sect within the church founded by the Disciples of Christ after he was killed, charged with keeping safe and hidden a container of tremendous power, something that must be kept away from evil. Father Loomis and others within the order, within the proximity of the canister, can also sometimes communicate to each other through dreams, hence their name. But now there is only one reoccurring dream with a disturbing message that can't quite be deciphered. And the priest needs help from Dr. Howard Byrack, as played by Wong, and a team of his best students to help him understand just what is transpiring. For a man of hard science, Barack is quite open and understanding to everything he's taking in. Built in the 1500s, by arrangement with the Spanish government. Who knew about this? Only the members of this forgotten sect, the Brotherhood of Sleep. Those of our sons, even their very existence was kept from the Holy See. The Vatican didn't know. The guardian priest would keep the secret. Before he died, would pass it on to another. The sect had enormous power and authority. Their actions were never questioned. Latin. Some of it's in Latin. Some in Coptic. Greek. Numbers. It's not easy to decipher. The original text has been distorted over the years. Distorted? Rewritten. Writing upon writing sometimes two or three times, and improperly erased. You can still see the old writing underneath. 
What is it? A secret that can no longer be kept. Do you feel it? Yes, something. It was never here before. It started a month ago. What started? A change in the earth and the sky. His power. Byrak agrees to put together a super team of students and colleagues from various scientific backgrounds and practices to help, 13 in all, including engineers, biochemists, radiologists, microbiologists, cryptoanalysts, mathematicians, and theoretical physicists, all to go to work in the dark, dilapidated, yet very large, church in a rundown area of L.A.'s inner city. It's here that the crew all get to know each other, and the burgeoning couple, theoretical physicist Brian Marsh, is played by Jameson Parker, and Catherine Danforth, is played by Lisa Blount, who's also an applied physicist, get to meet with their other colleagues. The joking quantum physicist Walter, is played by Dennis Dunn, who attempts to flirt with the very shy Kelly, is played by Susan Blanchard. I have volunteer our services to the Archdiocese. Each of you is a competent physicist, even though you don't have a degree to prove it. And participating in this examination will greatly improve your classroom averages, I might add. Now, plan to take your meals there or bring cots to sleep on. There are other departments joining us. Excuse me, sir. Is there some reason why you're not telling us what we're going to be doing? In time. They take in the strange cylindrical container being stored in the church basement, and they do some rudimentary breakdowns and try to translate the accompanying text that the Brotherhood has guarded throughout the centuries. And would you know it? They find that there's a slight mistranslation. They don't need to keep the contents of the cylinder away from Satan. What's inside is Satan. That whirling, swirling, spasmodic, green-hued ooze, that's his liquid essence. The liquid in the container itself has been reacting to them, standing there. Apparently, it's sentient, and it's been sending coded streams of data to them over time. So, utilizing their scientific knowledge, they end up feeding the data streams from the cylinder into one of their computers, and they realize that they're being spoken to by way of differential equations sent to them in Latin, allowing them to further decipher the origins of the container itself. Susan manages to carbon date the buildup that's on the outside of the container that ends up showing that it's 7 million years old, which further befuddles this group. This whole section's a kind of history. Part of it was indecipherable, as if someone were deliberately trying to erase it. I managed to piece together most of it. Okay, it kind of starts here. The container was buried somewhere in the Middle East eons ago by, gets a little wild here, the father of Satan, a god who once walked the earth before man but was somehow banished to the dark side. Apparently, the father buried his son inside the container. This was a section someone was trying to erase. Now, later on here, Christ comes to warn us. He was of extraterrestrial ancestry but a human-like race. Finally, they determine Christ is crazy, but he's also gaining power, converting a lot of people to his beliefs, so they kill him. 
But his disciples keep the secret and hide it from civilization until man could develop a science sophisticated enough to prove what Christ was saying. Something like this can really fuck up your weekend. How did the Roman Catholic Church manage to keep this a secret for 2,000 years? Apparently a decision was made to characterize pure evil as a spiritual force, even within the darkness in the hearts of men. That was more convenient. In that way, man remained at the center of things. A stupid lie, we were salesmen, that's all. We sold our product to those who didn't have it. The new life. Reward ourselves, punish our enemies, so we can live without truth. Substance, malevolence, that was the truth sleep until now so the thing in the basement that isn't even the big bad it was left behind by an even more powerful elder god who was somehow banished from this plane of existence by an unknown force one would assume our interpretation of the biblical god as mankind knows it christ wasn't who we have mythologized all this time he himself was an alien outsider warning us of what was truly out there in the cosmos telling us to keep satan at bay lest he wake to bring his father back it's all very hard for them to swallow suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct suppose there is a universe of mind controlling everything a god willing the behavior of every subatomic particle now every particle has an anti-particle its mirror image its negative side maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. Why weren't we told the truth? <laughs> Without the technology to confirm, it would have been another legend. But he was our prisoner, not yours. We had a responsibility to warn the rest of the world. Only the corrupt are listened to now. They tell us what we want to hear we believe it to be divine light <laughs> just got colder in here and, uh, suddenly it's as if as if something moved through the room what gets missed during all this research is that small rivulets of liquid are escaping from the container and actually causing havoc. Bugs begin to crawl up the sides of the building, all over the local homeless population, who begin to slowly, silently surround the church, blocking the doors with trash and attacking and killing any who exit. Lab technician Etchison, as played by Tom Bray, ends up getting impaled by the street schizo, as played by Alice Cooper, as he goes down the back steps to leave for the weekend. But 
Since he's going home, his absence is not noticed by the rest of the crew. Radiologist Susan, as played by Ann Howard, is in the basement with the cylinder when she notices that the container levels seem to have dropped. She looks up in horror as the green liquid that has now been pooling on the ceiling launches itself at her, dousing her, getting in her eyes, nose, and mouth. She ends up rising up, now possessed by Satan. She ends up breaking the neck of Mullins, as played by Dirk Blocker, who comes down looking for her, and proceeds to step out into the street, summoning insects and the homeless around her. She oversees the death of physics student Frank Windham, as played by Robert Grasmere, as he is stabbed to death with a pair of broken scissors by a possessed bag lady, as played by Joanna Merlin. Susan then proceeds to infect and possess Lisa and Yen, the cryptanalyst who is working on translations while she is sleeping. The liquid from the container begins to transfer into the body of the broken Mullins as well. Now, during all this time, the team do start to wonder where both Windham, Susan, and Mullins have gotten off to, but such strange things are happening, so they don't give it much thought. They end up announcing they're going to have a meeting in the lab and give everybody a half hour to get together. Microbiologist Colder, as played by Jesse Lawrence Ferguson, goes out to fetch people, and he finds a possessed Lisa sitting at her keyboard typing, I live, furiously, over and over. Then she starts sending messages that they will not be saved, either by God or science. He is then attacked by both Lisa and Susan, who pin him to the ground and douse him with the liquid that is Satan. The team members begin to realize that they are all sharing the same dreams. A dream that looks like a taped transmission, where a dark silhouette appears at the front of the very church they're in at the door, and a robotic voice claims that this is a message coming from the year 1999. They must help avert the apocalypse. They must stop Satan from completing his plan. They discuss what the dream means and how it could possibly be shared by all of them. And they begin to think that the people of the future have been sending them a message by way of tachyons. How many of you have fallen asleep tonight? Come on, please, tell me. Come on, please. You dreamed. You dreamed about the front of this church. About a, a dark figure coming out. Didn't you... Didn't you feel it? Not like a dream. Like something else. Yeah. I had to dream too. This image of something that didn't seem to belong to my subconscious. Almost as if I were watching something pre-recorded. Tachyons? One possibility. What's them? It's a Greek word. A swift one. So what is the dream? Huh? Precognition? Previous knowledge of a future event? A shared vision of something that is yet to occur? Caused by that thing downstairs? Perhaps not. Tachyon is a subatomic particle that travels faster than light. Supposing it isn't a dream. Supposing it's a message. What if these dreams, premonitions, omens, what if they're really 
visual messages sent by other human beings. Photographs, video signals. From where? The future. Anything traveling faster than the speed of light would appear to be going backward in time. A future scientist calculates the exact spot that the Earth occupied in space in the past, given trajectory and speed. He then beams a tachyon signal at that spot, transmitting video information backwards through time. For us to receive as electrical impulses, neural stimulus. For what purpose? Could be a warning to show us what's going to happen. A sort of remote camera view of the future so that we can change it. The discussion is interrupted by a reanimated Wyndham revealing himself to the group. They look out the back window, and to the horror of the students, he announces to them that he has a message from Satan himself, and they're not going to like it. He then opens his coat, and they're horrified to see that he is covered with beetles crawling in, out, and all over him. That is, until his head falls off and he dissolves into a writhing mass of insects, leaving only his clothes. Colder comes back into the lab, seemingly in a daze, shuffling up the stairs and singing Amazing Grace, alternating between laughing and sobbing. As the group runs to him, he attempts to kill himself in front of everyone with a broken section off of the stair banister, stabbing himself in the throat. The group manages to stabilize him, and Loomis does what he can, performing last rites. The others panic as they realize they've been barricaded in. The possessed Lisa and Susan have indeed been busy, moving the canister from the basement to the upstairs sleeping quarters, where the entire contents of the canister are dumped on and absorbed into the sleeping form of Kelly, making her the new physical avatar of Satan and giving him a corporal form to inhabit. Walter finds her, but it's all he can do to just hide in the closet from her minions. Now, it's the growing possessed bodies of both the living and the dead who begin to box in the remaining scientists, and they continue to look for more victims. The survivors are further separated. Walter is trapped with the Avatar in the supply closet. Father Loomis is stuck in the utility room, and the remaining students in the lab are locked in. The breaking dawn reveals to them truly how surrounded they are. They remain there, trapped for hours on end, as the Avatar slowly gestates within the form of Kelly, beginning to rot and deform her skin. Walter begins to panic as he watches this transformation happen over the hours, and he's terrified as Satan stands and, with a simple gesture, destroys the closet door that he's hiding behind, allowing the possessed women to begin to attack him. It's then that a full-on melee breaks out, with the survivors fighting hand-to-hand in the halls against the possessed. Bricks, wooden planks, glass, anything is a weapon to beat back the possessed forms. Satan needs a mirror large enough to draw his father, the anti-god, through, bringing him from that reality back into this one, and he needs to find a person-sized length to do it. Unfortunately, there is one in the utility room where Father Loomis is hiding. The room becomes filled with white light as the membrane between the two planes of existence interconnects and Satan places his hand into the mirror, which is now permeable as water, 
and we are shown from the other side a monstrous claw reaching back. Father Loomis grabs a fire axe and attacks Satan, cutting his arm off. And while Brian fights with the possessed colder to keep him from stopping the priest, Loomis tries his best to contend with Satan. But the possessed body of Kelly simply regrows the arm. He then swings the axe and cuts her head off, but it simply floats back on and reattaches to the body without any issue. Laughing, Satan slash Kelly pins the priest to the wall with a large cupboard and turns back into the mirror, again inserting her arm and trying to draw the anti-god out. The only one free to move at this point is Catherine, who, realizing what she must do, sobs and then runs head-on into the back of the possessed Kelly, hurling the two of them and pushing the arm of the eldritch god back through the portal into the dark realm. Still pinned, Father Loomis hurls his axe, shattering the mirror, closing the portal for good, while Brian screams in horror as Catherine disappears into darkness. The possessed drop dead. The homeless disperse and the insects retreat. Paramedics are summoned to the scene and Father Loomis, while saddened by all the losses, takes comfort in telling Professor Barak that they have indeed stopped it. They've averted the apocalypse. Byrak tries to comfort Brian, explaining that Catherine's sacrifice was for all of them, and she is going to be loved for that. And yet, even after things are all done, the dreams keep coming. And this time, they're even more clear. The message remains the same, but now the figure at the church door is no longer a darkened form. It's clearly Catherine, exiting through the doorway, standing in front of the church, striking a Christ-like pose. Brian wakes in a panic, and he finds a gruesome Satan-possessed Kelly next to him in bed, and he starts screaming. He wakes again, covered in sweat. If the dreams are still coming, then they didn't stop the apocalypse. The anti-god is still coming and staring at the mirror and thinking of Catherine, Brian ends up walking towards it, reaching his hand out to the glass to see if he can affect any change, as his fingertips begin to graze the surface of the pane. We cut to black. So, where do we begin? Well, I have to say for my money, I rather enjoy the fresh take, at least for the day, that you have the scientist as hero. What's more, it's religion asking science for help. You see, since the dawn of the atomic age, and truthfully even before that as a motif, go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, scientists are shown as brilliant but misguided individuals in fiction. They're often pushing the envelope to help create something unnatural. And if they're not creating something, they're often siding with the outside forces, be they aliens, monsters, or other groups who would help them achieve their means, often with this misguided concept of for the greater good, which almost always is detrimental to the heroes of the real story. So every one of them actually becomes this sort of Faustian figure, willing to sell their souls to further their own agenda not here. Here, you actually have, quote, quote, good guy scientists. You know, 
from a host of different fields who are all working together to try to understand and then later to combat that which is threatening the world. It's a refreshing story turn. Now, as far as the concept of religion asking for help, at least in this case with the Roman Catholic Church coming to the understanding that it doesn't have the answers, which I would argue the lapsed Catholic in me says, showing you that this is indeed a work of fiction, it's an interesting one. For example, in a modern age when science is being embraced as the go-to place for answers and intimating that science is supplanting the explanations that centuries earlier would have come from theologists and or members of the clergy, even this ending, it's about a scientist who is literally giving her life to save all of mankind, and it's a woman to boot. I can feel a bunch of you millennials and Gen Z people shrugging over this, but I have to tell you, in 1987, this was not something a mainstream film would have willingly thrown out there. This is kind of bold. I mean, imagine a pitch to a studio. Alright, alright. Everybody that got your attention? Gather around. Gather around. Okay. So there used to be this sinister and malevolent force that walked the earth, and it was doing unspeakable things until it was driven out by means we don't understand. Okay? You with me? Yeah. Okay. So it had a son. That son is Satan. And then he was imprisoned as a stopgap measure to allow himself a way to get back into this reality from the darkness that he's currently finding himself in. Alright? And then... Bear with me, you got a space alien, and he comes to warn us, and we end up calling him Jesus, and he was trying to explain to us, no, uh, hear me out, hear me out, he was trying to explain to us that you can't let Satan wake up, or he's gonna unleash, uh, oh, come on guys, okay, he's gonna unleash all sorts of horrible things upon us, but of course they killed him, and then we know modern religion was essentially a lie to make men feel better both superior and about themselves being centered in the universe, as well as used as a way to control people. Come, seriously guys, let me go. I think if you made this film now, regardless of the fact that it's clearly a fictional horror film, you would have fundamentalists protesting outside of theater chains. Still, as a thought experiment, the film does give you an intriguing one. It proposes that evil is literally something that is quantifiable. Hey, it's right over there. In the basement, there is a glowing 50-gallon drum of Mountain Dew. And hey man, I gotta tell you, it's pure evil. Does this film have problems? Oh yes it does. Out of the Apocalypse trilogy, I have to say it is the weakest of the three films, but I'll also give Carpenter credit, this film takes the most risk. As we previously mentioned, if the thing is the destruction of the body, you are going to have to swing for the fences and really pile on the science and metaphysical talk if you intend to create horror that shows the destruction of mankind's traditions of faith. To me, it's the quote, boring science and theological talk that most folks think bogs down the first half of the film, that's the part I actually find the most interesting. 
You're watching a dedicated group of intelligent people of different backgrounds and beliefs coming together to join in on a discovery that is going to basically change their shared history, traditions, and understanding of the universe explaining that all of those things are now based on lies, and you in turn get to see how they all react to it. Some deny it, some run from it, and some decide to stick it out and face what comes next, which is, incidentally, an attempt to summon dark forces from the void. In my mind, this is where Carpenter gets it right. People acting like actual people. The latter half of the film is just an amalgam of zombie siege tropes, and don't get me wrong, it's a good time, but this is where the silly of the story starts to bleed through. I know, I've screened this film for other people and they have not enjoyed the ending. They didn't like the jump scare and they didn't like the quick cut to black. They didn't like not knowing if Brian does indeed reach the mirror himself and retrieve his beloved Catherine. I've had heated arguments over it, but the fact of the matter is, A, while the apocalypse of this world has been temporarily averted, it has not been stopped. The dreams are undoubtedly still coming, which means the signal for help is still broadcasting. B, we don't know if Brian here is going to be able to even pierce the distance between the realm and the void. Perhaps he won't, but you get that feeling that he's going to spend the rest of his life, at least up to that confirmed apocalypse in 1999, attempting to get Catherine back. And to me, I feel the cutting to black is a great closer. It's uncertain certainty. Whether or not a hand is going to come out and grab his, whether or not his hand goes through the mirror, we know the Prince of Darkness is not finished with us. To that, I'll just have to quote the bard. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. But you know what? Not everyone has the same opinion of this film that I do, and that's alright. Because that's exactly why we have such a thing as the sidecar. Joining us today in the sidecar is none other than the great Velocipeter himself, host of Ninja News Japan and, of course, the Velocipodcast, monologist, raconteur, and a man who has some really strong feelings about this film. So, all that being said, what do you have for us today, Peter? I want to get very specific here, because Prince of Darkness does one thing exceptionally poorly and one thing exceptionally well. Because of how poorly the preceding moment happens, the following moment was even more shocking because it seemed to me, how could you get one thing so wrong and then get another thing so right? Chris has already filled you in on the basic plot points of the film. And then we get to this particular moment, which made me rage at the screen I was looking at. While I was sitting alone in a room watching this movie, I almost shouted at my own TV. I am not particularly expressive in life. This really would push me to my own sort of personal limits of what is acceptable in life. 
We break this up together, she'll hear this. Faith is a hard thing to come by these days. Look at this. That thing down there just directed a fairly sizable burst of energy. In a straight line, with a precision of less than a millisecond. Everybody's acting like we should really be taking this seriously. You two aren't taking this seriously, are you? A few minutes ago, a vibration was triggered in the metal on that thing downstairs. A strong one. Some kind of kinetic emission came out of it. Now, if it can transmit a signal strong enough... It can move other objects instantaneously across a distance. Without outside intervention. Psychokinesis. Mind-directed energy. Don't tell the others yet. Why not? They have a right to know that this, that it, it's conscious. Not until you prove it wasn't something else. A power surge or a draft of air. So what you've just listened to are two scientists discussing the results of an event that has been recorded on a machine that is connected to a phenomena in the basement beneath them. They have said, practically, it's done something. It can move things. It is conscious. At no point do they think, maybe we should go down there and take a look. Had to back up from the microphone for that one. It is so baffling to me that these two scientists have an extended conversation about an event, a phenomena, the readouts of which are sitting in front of them, the event of which is within walking distance, and they don't say, hey, let's go downstairs and maybe take a look at this. And it's even more shocking because we get to this second clip, which does something that I find astounding because so many movies and TV shows get this wrong. What if these dreams, premonitions, omens, what if they're really visual messages sent by other human beings? Photographs, video signals. From where? The future. Anything traveling faster than the speed of light would appear to be going backward in time. A future scientist calculates the exact spot that the Earth occupied in space in the past, given trajectory and speed. He then beams a tachyon signal at that spot, transmitting video information backwards through time. For us to receive as electrical impulses, neural stimulus. For what purpose? Could be a warning to show us what's going to happen. A sort of remote camera view of the future so that we can change it. What they are talking about is time travel. And time travel has been handled many, many different ways in many, many different shows. And there are a lot of things that we as viewers just accept because we don't want to sit here and talk about physics and stuff, which actually they do a lot of in this movie. They sit down and have a lot of sort of theoretical conversations, uh, making up for an incredible lack of action for honestly most of the film yet somehow still enjoyable because they're not getting so deep into it that it actually hurts your brain. One of the things that time travelers fail to take into account more often than anything else 
is that the position of the earth in space changes. So if I am sitting in my room and somehow I've turned my room into a time traveling machine and then I travel back in time, let's say five years, the earth is not actually in the same place, which means I, when I rematerialize five years in the past, I should actually be floating out in space and then die instantly. There are a couple of other things that go along with time travel of a similar vein, like air pressure. The simple fact is the human body isn't designed to have significant changes in air pressure happen quickly and survive. So if I'm on top of a mountain and I travel in time or space, this also works for teleportation, and I go to a completely different air pressure, my lungs might just explode because I have all this gas and stuff inside my body. It needs to get out really fast because of the change in pressure. That is something that if you're traveling in time or space instantly needs to be taken into account. Now, in this case, they're just sending video signals, but they have done the right thing. They have said, you can't just have the video signals go out into space or something like that randomly and actually expect to hit their mark. You have to have someone sit down and calculate where was the earth at this point in time in the past, and then we can shoot it back there. That to me was a shockingly good piece of thinking. You couple that with a few minutes previous where they had a physical event and they were too dumb to go downstairs and take a stupid look at the thing that happened because they were talking about something moving and then they just, oh yeah, let's not go look at it. Let's just, you know, let's just talk about the paper that's sitting in front of us for a while. I don't know. Why don't we do that? That seems like a good idea. Let's just stand here. Now, I don't want to go downstairs and actually see the thing. I'm just going to, you know, go over here for a while. So I guess that's the, how that worked out. Okay. As he often does, Peter brings up two excellent points. First, yes. Absolutely. The scene where the equipment upstairs starts picking up on activity emanating from the basement below, which we as the viewer know is the cylinder spraying and then possessing Susan, it's a most befuddling course of action. Something big just happened downstairs. And yeah, I get not wanting to tell others not to panic. But, as Peter points out, None of what Barack tells Brian can be done without them physically going downstairs. To simply turn back to the computer and see if it does it again, that tells you nothing about what's actually happening in the room. It's a moment of weak writing. And by the way, it could have been totally accounted for by then purposefully sending Mullins back down to investigate what's going on. Then that gives you the opportunity to have him go to check on things and or be killed by the now-possessed Susan. That's just, you know, another draft or a good thought would have fixed that. Second, while we have discussed tachyons, they are not anything more than theoretical particles. They do a great job here in explaining the logical messaging that would have been computed to having messages go backwards through time. I completely agree with Peter on this thought. It was handled very well. So again, as always, that is some excellent and spirited content from the Velocipeter himself. Well done, sir. So how was this film received? Critically, not well. At best, it was deemed average, but most of the critics cited that this was not Carpenter's best work. 
plot was accused of being boring, the actors flat, the violence when it did come was hackneyed. For the day, Time Out's Nigel Floyd actually was the only person I found that gave the film a real positive review, claiming that it was both engrossing and focused on Carpenter's stellar camera work here. But hey, that's fine. Critics stopped getting Carpenter a long time ago. Here's the difference. This film made money, at least in the sense that it recouped its loss and it ended up grossing a modest but still respectable $14.2 million at the box office. Not bad for a film that was made for a budget of $3 million. From that standpoint, it's alright that this film was seemingly destined to be yet another cult film, because it would completely get a second life as a video store favorite. Carpenter walked away vindicated that he got to tell a story that he wrote and shot it the way he wanted, and it was a modest success. Bouncing back is indeed hard to do. Now the version of The Prince of Darkness that we screened here at the LSCE is the 2003 Universal release that came out in a fairly bare-bones edition. Honestly, it's still available for the purchase of $9.99, but here's the funny part. You can get the film Prince of Darkness coupled with three other John Carpenter films for $15 on DVD, or more importantly, Shout Factory, by way of their subsidiary Scream Factory, has released a sexy Blu-ray collector's edition that can be had for $22.99, and it comes loaded with commentary, featurettes, and behind-the-scenes goodies, which is perfect for all real fans of Carpenter's work, and thus, I would say, well worth your hard-earned cash. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here for telling you to purchase films from anybody, we just think it's important that you can continue to physically support physical media. And these are great companies who own the rights and will continue to release content that we all know and love if we just keep making these purchases. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? You want to see the things you love and you want to get a copy of it. And besides, Prince of Darkness needs to be something that is seen to be believed and it's a likable romp towards the end of times. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to again extend a special thank you to our sidecar guest, the Velocipeter himself, Peter Martin, for joining us here today. If you've enjoyed his breakdown, and why wouldn't you, you can find him speaking on a host of other topics, both at Ninja News Japan and on the Velosa podcast. So please get out there, support our friends, give him a listen, a like, and please give him a review. If you like us, please give us a review, click subscribe, find us on the podcast platform of your choice. We're also available on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators of podcasts alike. Find us there if you could. Give us a follow and a review if you please. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there everybody, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy everybody.